Art of the Cut is brought to you by Evercast. Evercast is the first real-time collaboration platform built for creatives by creatives with video conferencing and HD live streaming in one web-based platform. Stay tuned for a special offer later in the show. Art of the Cut is also brought to you by Frame.io, a leading collaboration platform for filmmakers. Hello and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. Today, we're talking with Kristen Sprague. Kristen edited Judas and the Black Messiah, which was just nominated for an Oscar for Best Picture. Kristen also edited Shaka King's previous film, Newlyweeds, and on Terrence Nance's Random Acts of Flyness web series, which had an episode directed by Shaka King. Other features edited by Kristen include Manos Sucias, which was nominated for an Independent Spirit Award for Best Editing, Cuban Food Stories, and Nigerian Prince. One of the things I'm always interested in is the differences between script and uh, and what happens in the editing room, which is often substantial. One of the things that uh, struck me just as a point to start the conversation is this idea of Judas, uh, Wild Bill, getting kind of co-opted by the FBI. His recruitment isn't really completely detailed. They show him in an interrogation room and that's all you really know. He doesn't say, yeah, I'll do it. They don't ask him. There's nothing. Uh, was that scripted and shot or was that something that was never even shot? Um, no, that that wasn't shot beyond the, I mean, the um, that first meeting between um, the FBI and the, the, the Jesse Plemons character, Roy Mitchell um, and Bill O'Neill, it was a longer scene. Um, we had more in there where there was a little more back and forth between them. Um, but we never, he never asks him about to join. He never, you never, you never really went into exactly what um, he's supposed to do. Um, and then we always wanted to reveal O'Neill in the classroom. That was always, that was also planned. That was in the script. Um, but was also in the script was another, we had a, an additional, um, of the, you know, like the, the kind of fake interview we do, we have our version of the, the Keith Stanfield doing the interview and then we end with the actual interview. We had another piece in there that filled in a little bit of the gap. Um, I mean, our, our issue was, you know, we're like, everyone's going to know that going in. Like, that's the story of the movie. Shaka, the director, also likes to kind of like stay ahead of the audience. It's more, we find it's more interesting to just, you know, take you there and show it instead of forecasting it or explain it. Just, you know, show what it is, show what's happening. I mean, the first act, there's a lot of that. That was scripted in the first act that we ended up cutting. The first act, we, we restructured the whole thing, like when we read it, where originally we had met him in that classroom. That used to be the first scene after um, you see Bill O'Neill get arrested, but then we switched that up. We, we lost some stuff. We feel like we don't need to show every step of the way. We just need to show the key moments and then let the audience fill in the gaps. Yeah, that's the old uh, film editing saw about never let the audience get ahead of you, right? You always want to stay one step ahead of the audience. So they're like, oh, that's what that is. You don't want people to know exactly where we're going the next. You don't want them to be totally lost. <laughs> like, you don't want to get too far ahead of the audience, you know, but you want them to be able to figure stuff out instead of telling them where we're going. One of the interesting intercutting things um, that I was wondering whether that was structured a little different, you just mentioned restructuring the first act. There's a scene, I call it the war and politics scene, where he's in the classroom, Fred's in the classroom, talking about the difference between those two things. And it cuts outside of that classroom to him teaching a bunch of little kids, and it cuts back. 
um, uh, there's just, I love intercutting and talking about intercutting. So tell me what the purpose was or what the thought was of doing that intercutting between those multiple scenes in there. Yeah, initially that was something we found in the end. So as it was scripted, it was supposed to be like you meet him and you get the education first and then you see him speaking at the college. But we ended up flipping that around. That sequence became a montage. Originally it was scenes one right after the other. We liked the scenes, um, especially like the scene. I mean, that scene in the classroom was great. We thought it was very important, but everything together was dragging a little bit. And that came later, I would say, when we started to intercut it. That came on one of our last preview screenings. You know, there were things that me and Shaka, the director, wanted to try. And then there were other things that the producers wanted us to try. And we didn't have time to do both um, because, and some, some of the things were like different versions of similar sections and scenes. And so we ended up bringing in an extra additional editor for just one pass to try some other stuff. Um, Jennifer Lane, who had just cut Tenet. And that was one of the things they were gonna try. We had tried to cut the, that into more of a montage, but it just, it wasn't working for us for some reason. We weren't like able to like crack it. There were also other scenes that we had, that were in there that we ended up cutting. Um, that we had just cut. So we were worried about like cutting it down and getting the scenes down, but we weren't able to figure out exactly how to do it. And then Jennifer Lane took a pass and it was interesting watching how she did it because it was just not how we had thought. We we're like, oh wait, we never even thought about that. But it was like watching the way she did it, we were like, oh, okay, we can do this. Yeah, that one kind of evolved. That was one of the last things I think we did was um, that montage. I'm sure the war and politics scene was a great scene by itself and the other scene was a great scene by itself, but seen in context, right? You start feeling like, oh. Yeah, there's, it's always like that. I mean, I think our first full cut that we were happy with was like two hours and 30 something minutes. And it was just, it was too long. But each scene individually, we really liked, <laughs> you know, like in and of itself, we were like, yeah, this is great. We don't need to cut this. This is great. But then when you watch them all together, you're like, okay, some of this needs to go because it's just, it's, you know, it's, it, get, it adds up. Two and a half hours is a long time. Process-wise, tell me a little bit about how you approach a scene. Uh, were you cutting an Avid? Yes, we were cutting an Avid. What do you do when you walk in in the morning? I like to do string outs of everything, um, like very detailed, you know, kind of line by line string outs. Uh, pretty tedious process, um, and it's rough on the assistant editors. Uh, and it's rough on me because I like to do it too sometimes. Um, I like to do that for a couple of reasons. If it's a really important scene, um, I like to sometimes do it myself because you really learn the scene and the rhythm. Oh, yeah. Performances and everything while, you know, when you're doing that. Because I'm literally like taking each line. If it's, I want each line from every take, every angle, all in a row. Basically, when I'm like making editorial choices, I don't want to be looking for stuff because it kind of takes you out. So I want to have everything very organized up top. So what I'll do is... Um, have the string outs. And then, I mean, also have it strung out just with the full takes. Um, and then usually what I do is before we start cutting, I mean, in this case, I made like an assembly while they were shooting, but usually, um, but I mean, it's the same process, I guess, because basically if I'm by myself or with the director, um, we'll watch all the dailies for that scene, just straight through one after the other. And then we'll talk about it. And sometimes if there's like, if there's like a really key moments or really good things or really like, oh, that we have, you know, that works we'll like grab those to kind of like use as signposts but then it's really like start from the beginning and go through the string outs and see each line by line and build it that way um, but usually i'll be building towards like sometimes you know there's something oh this really works or you know this take was really good or this portion was really good or you might have one or two two or three things like that and you like you kind of okay i'm going to use these 
And then it's kind of figuring out which takes to use between them and how to get between them. What do you do? Because uh, I use the same methodology. Essentially, I go a little bit bigger blocks. I don't do line by line. I do like three or four lines. I'll break a, a scene into five pieces instead of individual lines. What do you do to keep it from getting choppy? Because if you break it line by line, you know, there's that tendency to go, oh, this is the perfect line, and then this is the perfect line, and then when you put them all together, it doesn't work. You know, with bigger scenes, there's like like the scene in um, the first scene in the abandoned church where they meet the crowns, that scene, or the scene in the other church scene where it's Fred giving the speech, big scenes like that, those I'll do both. Usually what I'll do is like I ask the assistant editors to kind of break it down by beats, you know, like you said. Because sometimes I don't want, like with the speeches especially, we didn't want line by line. Or with that, like with very big scenes with a lot of coverage, sometimes, uh, you know, you want to be able to see more. So I'll do kind of like, it's a process. I'll have like, I'll have the assistant editors do a bigger kind of string up by beats. And then I'll go in and while, and when watching each of those beats, I'll start figuring, okay, this is where I want to break it. This is where I want to break it. And I'll, and I'll make like a more fine tuned one. But then in terms of when you're actually cutting, I, that one of the things, reasons I love Avid is it's very easy for me to match frame. A lot of times I use the string outs to just find the pieces and then like I'll match frame to the original piece so I can watch a little bit more than just one line. And then like the string outs just make it so I can quickly go right to there. I feel like the first cut is always cutty. <laughs> the first, especially like the first, like they kept calling it an editor's cut. Um, and I kept saying, it's not a cut, please. This is an assembly. This is a very rough assembly. Like when they were shooting, I was cutting. But without the director there, I could like, there were decisions that like, you know, I want to talk about. Um, so I wouldn't know which one to use. So I would kind of just kind of throw everything in. Any kind of moment that could work or anything that was in the script, anything extra, like I would try and make it work or try, see, just see if it works. So the first one is usually very cutty. <laughs> and then it's like, it's, you know, the second pass is going through and saying, okay, these are all great individual lines, but like, which is really the one I need and watching the takes around that. What does that assembly even do for you? It just shows you what you shot. It shows you everything you shot. It shows you what you have. It shows you what you're going to be working with, basically. That's how I see it. You know, assemblies are, are always bad. <laughs> There's no way around it. You're getting to know the footage. You know, you're finding the rhythm in, within scenes and between scenes. You're just figuring it out in the, in the assembly. Um, and I feel like even you can tell as the assembly goes, they, they get better towards the end because you are figuring it out. You're like, oh, okay, you know, you're it's things like you're figuring out the actor's performances, you know, you're figuring out how, what can we do with this performance? Um, is it exactly what we thought it was? Let you know what can work and what you're like, oh, we're gonna have to work on that or we missed that or like that could be stronger, things like that. It's just, it's like, it's more informational than like an actual cut. There's some debate with the people that I've interviewed about whether you do the cut directly exactly as the script has it or do you edit the way you think it should be edited i try and do the assembly especially if i'm not with the director then i try and do it to the script sometimes i'll if it's simple enough i'll do like a quick alternate version of like this can easily be done this way but i try and see if we can like what the script looks like if i'm working with the director then we you know we can go off script all we want you know i want them to at least see what it is you know and make those choices with them so like for this one there was like you know and there's stuff you're cutting and you're as you're cutting it you're like we don't need this we're gonna cut this but let's let's just see you know and you never know because you might be like we're gonna cut this 
And then you do cut it. And then months later, you feel, realize, you know what, we can use a shot from that somewhere else. We can use this for something else that we hadn't, we never thought of. That actually works really well. Let's talk about that process of getting you out of the assembly edit into the final version that's, that's working. What is that process? Obviously, you know, the director finally gets out of shooting and gets into the cutting room with you, and that is a huge help. But what are you discussing and how are things changing once you can see things in context? It was obvious early we had to figure out kind of the balance between our two leads. We have almost two different movies going on. We have this very almost genre crime movie about an informant, you know, and then we have this biopic about Fred Hampton. They feel different. A lot of this movie was finding the balance between those, finding the balance between whose story it was, um, whose point of view we're in. We tried earlier ones, we tried, like we would only see Fred more through the William O'Neill character's perspective. We saw less of Fred outside of that to make it more like a thriller, like a crime thriller. There at one point we had cut out the stuff with like Fred in jail. You know, let's see how it feels if he just goes away. And we're like, well, maybe the audience will miss him like the actual Panthers missed him in real life. We tried that. Didn't work. Um, we were like, no, we miss it um, too much. And not like we miss it in a, in a bad way. So then we started bringing back more of Fred's outside life. With this film, it was a lot of that. It was a lot of figuring out at what point, like whose story are we in right now? And where do we need to be? You empathize with both men. People know about Fred Hampton or, you know, he's, he's on the historical record. There's a lot of footage of him, you know, documentaries, and he's a public figure. There's much less known about William O'Neill. That one interview we use is the only interview he's ever done. So a lot of him was created that character. It was important, I think, for Shaka. Shaka made a choice. We didn't want to dehumanize him. We didn't want him to be like a sociopath or just like, you know, this evil person with no conscience. Because we didn't want people to be able to distance themselves too easily from him. We have these two, our two leads are like, they're two young men. They're both very young. Um, William O'Neill was younger than Fred. He was like 19 or 20 when all this happened. It's two young men who had very different reactions to being in the same uh, situation. And on one hand, you have Fred who knows what he's doing, knows who he is. He has like a, a code or something to live by. You know, he has his beliefs. He has socialism. He has the people. You know, he knows what he wants. Whereas then you have O'Neill, who doesn't really have any code to live by other than like getting money. That's one thing we do know about him is he was a hustler. He was robbing cars with an FBI badge. That wasn't traumatized. He was at like 19. He, you know, he was a brave kid to, to even think to do that. You know, we want to show that like these are two men having two different reactions. And like, if you don't really think about what you're doing, if you don't really have anything beyond like, where you're going to get the next dollar, it's very easy to get caught up. If the only thing you have is kind of like this capitalistic, predatory capitalism to like scam people, if that's all you're really thinking about, it's very easy to get led astray. And so we didn't want to make him into like a monster where people couldn't identify with him. Most people are not going to want to see themselves in him, but like we did want some people to really, you know, to see that this wasn't just like this evil person or he didn't have a conscience or whatever. It was like, we're all kind of somewhere in between, you know, Fred and Bill. And most of us are probably, myself included, are probably closer to Bill than Fred. Some of your cuts between scenes, I'm not really talking about prelapse inside of a scene, but between scenes uh, are hard cuts. You're in one place and boom, the audio changes, the music changes, everything on a cut. And then other ones, like uh, the first time he goes to the FBI agent's house, I know that's a prelap. 
There are a couple other ones. What's the value of that prelap? Why do you do that? Is it just variety? Does it get you anything? Like the reason we did it into Agent Mitchell's house was we were really trying to contrast like their living situations. Because that was out of Bill, like in his bedroom in the dark, right? Um, and he like, and that's, that's his whole house. That's not his bedroom. That's his house. Like, and we were trying to show like how, you know, Bill comes in happy because he had like, he's finally like had a good interaction with Fred. He feels like he's finally getting in, you know, and then he comes down and his like, his energy kind of drops um, because his living situation is not great. And then we wanted to contrast that with the suburban house with a law, a yard and Originally, we were going to shoot the yard, but it, it snowed really bad, so they couldn't. <laughs> I'm sitting in Chicago right now, so I can kind of relate. Um, we wanted to, like, kind of contrast that. And so, like, hearing his voice, like, kind of having this, like, weird voice, you know, kind of invade his and bring him into this nice place. That's why we did it there. Other times, we wanted to be more jarring. You know, and even if it's connected, like we did that with the scene where the FBI is writing the letter. Um, we had different versions of that. Like, we shot the whole letter. But it was just too much. It was, um, it was, you know, slowing things down. It was, we didn't feel what we needed. We tried like post-lapping that, you know, to see if that worked. That did and it worked better just card cutting out of it into the meeting. And then when they start reading the letter, you let, again, letting the audience put it together. As an audience member myself, I was like, where's this letter coming from? And then as soon as you get that little clue about the guy saying, digging, you're like, oh, this is what they were talking about in the previous scene. Yeah, and then we need to hear them say it again. And then we saw his performance. We're like, no, that should be enough. Like His performance should be enough, hopefully, to remind you. And that was one where it was a hard cut, where we just wanted to cut the letter off and get into the next scene and then let the voting put the pieces together. Did you edit in Chicago or did you? No, well, they actually shot in Cleveland. They shot in Cleveland. We edited in New York, though. Um, so in the morning, every day when we got in there in the morning, we had the previous day's footage downloaded and the assistant edits, editors would start going through it and processing it. We'll be back in a moment with more of my conversation with Kristen Sprague. Today's episode of Art of the Cut is brought to you by Evercast. It's hard to beat the ease of sitting shoulder to shoulder with the director cutting together in real time. The Evercast platform gives you that in-person experience no matter where you are. You can securely stream your Avid, Premiere, or any other NLE in 1080p with ultra-low latency. Plus, you can video chat, record, draw on the screen, and even make timestamp notes. No more uploading and downloading of files, no more installing special hardware or sending notes back and forth. Evercast now offers flexible plans to make it accessible to more creatives. And in the month of March, Art of the Cut listeners can save $50 off their first subscription by heading to evercast.us AOTC. That's E-V-E-R-C-A-S-T dot U-S slash A-O-T-C. Today's episode of Art of the Cut is also brought to you by Frame.io. Now that remote workflows are the new normal, filmmakers need a better way to collaborate with their teams and clients. Frame.io keeps editors, directors, producers, and DPs connected no matter where they are in the world. You can shoot in London, cut in New York City, and review in L.A. all at the same time, before production even wraps. Frame.io's cloud-based platform helps you work at lightning speed, and their industry-leading security keeps your team and your assets safe. Head over to Frame.io to start your free trial today. That's Frame.io. And now back to my conversation with Kristen Sprague. Let's talk about sound design, because I loved some of that. 
um, giving you a sense of where you are and the environment. If you're not from Chicago, the west side and the south side of Chicago would definitely sound a little different. Talk to me about using that sound design and how much of that you did in the picture cut. Um, in terms of in the picture cut, I don't do too much sound design. Like in terms of sound design for picture, I just want to make sure you, it's not nothing's distracting, um, and that you understand. Like you know, if it's supposed to be urban or city outside, then you hear city sounds. Going back to that scene between O'Neill's apartment and Mitchell's house, they did a much better job. But it was always there. Like we definitely wanted to hear the city outside, and then cut and hear like a lawnmower and birds very suburban. Um, so like, I think we put in a lawnmower, but that's it. And then I'll let the sound team do their job. And we had an amazing, also we had an amazing sound team. Um, we had Skip Luce and Rich Bologna, who um, Skip has won our sound mixer. He's won multiple Oscars. So we were like, let's, we, he knows what he's doing. And then it was, you know, thankfully like, I mean, this was weird because the pandemic happened in the middle of our post process. So we had to go home and then we came back. But luckily by the end, we could at least be in like, the nice theater with them when we were mixing. And a lot of that came then in conversations then in the room then and the stuff they had done. But like when I try and just, I try and like kind of give it a direction and make sure it's not distracting. I don't want you to be pulled out by sound, but I don't spend too much time on it. The beginning of this, when they showed me those guys who were going to do it and their resumes, they were like, do you think, how do you, how do you feel about these two? And I was like, yes, <laughs> yes. It sounded like it was mostly needle drop or there was definitely score. Talk to me a little bit about the combination of those two things. Again, the, the pandemic kind of changed how we approached that. Technically, we had four composers on this. Technically, um, we had the two main composers or the two original composers were Craig Harris, who was a jazz musician who had never done uh, a movie before. And Mark Isham, who Isham, who's done like a hundred movies um, and they were working together. And originally why we had, we wanted them both was we were going to kind of like, we, you know, we did a spotting session and we talked about well, how we felt and what we thought we needed. And like, should we put music here? Should we put music there? Um, and we had already had some temporary stuff put in, but mostly not, not temporary score, like mostly like other, you know, like jazz music. That's cause that's kind of the direction we wanted to like, kind of make a jazz score. And then we were going to have, you know, we were going to write some, kind of themes for different things or different sections and then have some jazz musicians kind of take those skeletons and improvise. And then we were going to, you know, with, um, we had also, we had Marvin Morris was our music editor. He was a great music editor. We started wanting more classic score kind of things. And so what ended up happening was during the pandemic, we were all kind of separate places. And so Mark and Craig would kind of make stuff to try for different scenes. And we would go back and forth with them using that stuff. And then we had two others were um, Quelle Chris and Chris Keys, who are actually musicians. They're producers and rappers, or Quelle is a rapper and uh, Chris Keys is a producer. And they were actually helping us with some music stuff as well. So like a good example of how that worked was like the, the, the shootout in the middle of the film at the headquarters where the police come. Originally we cut that scene and there was no music. And we weren't sure if we were gonna put music or not. We weren't sure. And then Quelle was like, you know what? Can I try something? He just wanted to try something. Um, and we were like, yeah, go ahead. And he made like a, a percussive track. So it was just drums and me and, um, and it really worked. And we, were, we put it on the scene and we're like, wow, this really works. But it didn't sound like anything else we had in the film. We cut it in and then basically we gave it to Mark and Craig and they started adding things on top of it. Um, and they started adding other elements you know, that were more in the vein of the other stuff. So what you see now is like a combination. I think like all four of our composers had a hand in that one piece. 
you know, the percussion stuff came first. Then we added a lot of the strings and all the other things on top and we pulled out some of the percussion and, you know, adjusted it from there. This was an interesting process, the, the music here. But we always knew it was going to be a combination of score and needle drops. Um, so things like the music in the very beginning, that's from a song called The Inflated Tear. That, so that was a song that Shaka had, basically when he was like pitching, he would like come with music, you know, for like time and character. And he'd always like that song. He was, for, for whatever reason, that song sounded like William O'Neill to him. So that was another one. We cut the first scene and we're like, let's see if this works. We're like, we're going to put some music here. We weren't sure what. So like, let's see how this, he was like, he'd always want, he always felt like this sounded like him, the character. And it worked great. And so what we ended up doing with that is then as things progressed and we realized, okay, we weren't going to be able to do exactly what we wanted to do. The composers took the notes themselves and they kind of reconfigured it for other instruments in other parts of the movie. So that kind of became like something that like a jump off point for a lot of our other music. And then other things were just needle drops that really worked. So like we ended up kind of like there's a between the Fred Hampton and Deborah Johnson character. There's the same, we use the same Bill Simmons song. That was one of the ones we found as a needle drop that kind of sounded like score. That's when we started kind of going more and like, okay, we do want some more score stuff. But that, we had originally tried that. We were going to use that for when he gets out of prison. And it worked very, like, we put it in and like, it was like all on, all the beats we needed to hit, it hit. And then, so once that works a month or whatever later, we were working on the earlier scene where they first meet, which also didn't have music at first. And they're like, we were like, Chuck was like, let's try, let's see how it works. Like one day, you know, he wasn't even there. He just like, he was like, try, see how it works. And I tried it and I was like, oh, this is, it just fell right in. And, you know, and that kind of became like their theme then. So we kind of liked that. Like originally we were thinking of replacing it. But then with everything happening and then it works so well, we're like, let's just keep it. It works. And it's, you know, it kind of fit with the rest of our music anyway. Yeah, there's a great track I liked when when Fred and his group meet with the Crowns and it's almost revealed about Bill, just a single acoustic bass track. It's almost film noir. It's like it's got a, a jazzy feel to it, but it's definitely tense. Yeah, that was Craig Harris because he comes with the jazz background. You know, we tried a bunch of different things on that. First, we had temporary music to kind of just set tone. Um, I never liked that temporary track we were using, though. <laughs> <laughs> and then we tried a couple of different ways. We tried more aggressive, more like, you know, scorey things. Craig Harris knew a, a really good bassist. We wanted to do more like that. Um, that was like our original, what we would have, Chaka was originally hearing in his head. But even if the pandemic hadn't happened, I think we probably would have went the way we went, more scoring, you know, more of a combination than just straight jazz. And what do you do to prepare for a, a movie musically? What kind of stuff do you pull in? Obviously, it sounded like you were saying Shaka had a whole bunch of cues that he already knew that he was pitching with. So I'm assuming you imported all those. And then what, what else do you do to prepare? So Shaka had kind of like a playlist. When he would send people the script, he would send them like a playlist of all these songs from the era. So we had that. And then we had a good, uh, our edit room assistant, he had good taste in music. I, I know him from other projects. And I was like, he, I trust him. And so we had him just kind of like pull, you know, I, we was, I was like, just find some like, what were they listening to? You know, what was popular? What, not just what was popular, just what was coming out around in Chicago around then. Because we didn't want to do just like the top, 40 of the time. We did want the stuff to be period appropriate, but we didn't want it to just be like pop music. We were definitely looking for a lot of the jazz stuff, free jazz, especially um, like more, which is more looser. It's, you know, it's, so I had 
yeah, the assistant editors and our edit room assistant, they searched for a bunch of stuff. They brought all that in. So I would have, you know, just a bin full of music. Shaka would bring more stuff. He would, you know, when he finally got, when he got from set, he had even more ideas. So we had a lot of music to pull from, actually. Uh, talk to me a little bit about your collaboration with Shaka and and how did that work and how did the two of you work together? Um, I mean, me and Shaka have known each other since college or I guess technically high school we met. We started filmmaking together. So our process is very, it's the same process essentially. Like we've kind of figured it out together. So, you know, it's really easy for us to work together. And he, Shaka likes to be in the room a lot. Aside from actually working the Avid, he could edit a movie himself. <laughs> like he's, you know, some directors want to give notes and leave and like let you play around with it. Shaka likes to be in the room for most of it. But then there are also times where like, especially if we can't figure it out together, there are things where like he'll leave and I'll sit on it for a day or two. And then when I have time, I'll come back by myself. But a lot of it is us working together, just going through line by line, scene by scene. That's one of those places the selects reel, that selects reel really helps, right? Is when you're in with a director. Yeah, I mean, the way we like to work is like I said, when we come to a scene, we watch all the footage, just, you know, each take one after the other. Um, and just while we're watching it, talk about it. That's where you get on the same page, you know, as you're talking, we're like, oh, that worked or oh, that didn't work. Or, you know, we have to use that or like flag that, you know, that's great, you know, or like stay away from that. That didn't work at all. We don't want to use that. Um, it's tough when you're making a movie about a real person. There were some takes when they went to meet the Young Patriots where Fred Hampton's character ended up like lower than Vesperman, the leader of the Young Patriots. And the family was like, they didn't like that. They didn't like the power dynamic that that. And I was like, oh, I wasn't even thinking about that. So, you know, so Shaka was like, don't use those, use these. We reshot it this way because of that. So I feel like we, you know, we watch everything and kind of talk it through. And then from there, we kind of just jump in and see, you know, what, what works. And then try and, you know, we have those kind of, like I said, those kind of milestones, those touchstones where like this really worked. So we know we're going to get to that, but how do we get there? And then we just go through step by step, really, the two of us. Or sometimes, you know, we can't, he can't always be there because the directors have lot of shit to do um so sometimes they have to leave so like you know we'll go through and pull selects if he can't be there we'll pull more specific selects while we're talking be like try this try this maybe one of these or these three work see whichever we can use and then i'll cut it together by myself um but usually shaka likes to be there he likes to have very hands-on it must be nice to have that long relationship with him that you know when you fail or when something doesn't quite work he knows you're going to come through with us because we know each other well and we work together well or sometimes it takes longer if you have two people working on the same thing but i think in our case it's, it's kind of faster because there's always when you're working by yourself there's always going to be times where you're like i'm not you where you have questions you know where it might it, it might be as simple as like we have three takes that really work like i can make any of these work and they're all pretty good like which one do you like? And it's like, if they're not in the room, I kind of like can make a choice. But then like when I, I still want to get their input on that, you know, so when we're working through it, I'm like, oh, I also have these other two that could work. Whereas if he's in the room, you know, we find it and we're like, all three of these work, we can have the conversation right there. And be like, which one works? Which do you like? And we can, you know, talk about it then. Being that we've worked together for so long, you know, I understand kind of what he's doing. Usually, I think that's a big part is, is like figuring out what the director means and how they want to do it. Usually when you work with a new director, you have to kind of figure each other out. We don't have to figure each other out. We can just write, get right into it. Uh, one of the things that I liked at the beginning of the movie, it, it almost threw me a little bit, but it, it was because it was so smooth that it threw me, was you're in this documentary section 
And then bef- without even knowing it, you go from documentary to narrative. Like if you didn't know the actor, and you're like, you just think, oh, we're still in the documentary. Next thing you know, now you're narrative. So that was an interesting transition. Was that always planned to be that way that you just go straight from documentary into the narrative? It was similar to that evolved as well. That we tried a bunch of different ways. We tried many different ways to start this film. Originally, we tried to see if we could do without any of that. Originally, we wanted to see if we could start on the shot, like the shot of Bill O'Neill walking up to the car. Because we were like, that's just a great way to start a movie. It sets the tone. But we realized, like, people are bringing different understanding to this. So we were like, okay, we have to at least establish some sort of baseline so people can understand what the Panthers are doing and why they're doing it. And then there was, I mean, in the script, there was also a version where it started with newsreel, but it was it was less newsreel and it was more like a scene. You know, it wasn't, we didn't, we were, you know, we weren't selling it as much as a separate little thing. We wanted more archival up top just to explain everything and kind of like set a tone and just kind of like set a baseline of understanding. So this is the world. This is what was happening with the Panthers. This is what happened with the FBI. So we can understand what's going to, what you're about to watch. Now we have the credits over it, but we tried to like incorporate the credits into it. That didn't really work. Um, We had like more graphical credits that didn't work. And then we finally kind of figured out this like kind of, It's almost like a newsreel, but it's a stylized newsreel. So like, it's like, it's kind of both, you know, it's kind of like this mini doc. And then, yeah, we, and then it was more towards the end where we figured out to, like we cut it and then we figured out, okay, where do we need to transition? And we just did the, that little, basically it's like Hoover's stopping the newsreel. So it was kind of in the script, but not exactly how it turned out. You know, it was like one of those things that if I went away and came back and evolved. And how did all that newsreel footage come to you? Because it's different than just a daily situation where, oh, they shot it, it goes in a bin, now I can use it. It was almost like cutting a documentary, a mini documentary at first. So talk to me about that process. Originally, it was going to be one piece of newsreel that they actually used, that they shot with, you know? Um, So we had that one piece of newsreel and it was like 30 seconds or 20 seconds or something small. Um, And then we were like, okay, we need to expand this. Again, it was the, the, my assistant editors um, and our editing assistant. Like I kind of like me and Shaka sat down and kind of figured out what do we need, what do we want, what are like what are the possible things we could talk about in this. And so we came up with like a list of like topics, people, kind of images, you know, times. And then we gave that list to the assistant editors. So it was two assistant editors and our editing assistant, and the three of them kind of like would divide it up, and everyone would kind of look for stuff. This also happened right when we went home. That was interesting. Like we had to figure out what we were doing and while we were doing this, like they would, you know, so they would find stuff and like put it on the system and then they would send it to me. And it was this whole convoluted thing we figured out. Also, luckily, our our post super also has experience with documentary stuff. So he could actually help. So like he knew places, you know, so we used a lot of stuff from Chicago film archives and he like actually knew someone who physically worked at Chicago film archives. Um, so that also helped. So he could suggest stuff. He found us some stuff. And then we would get all this footage in. Me and Shock would watch through it and we would kind of pull selects. Then I would kind of try and cut something together out of these selects. We would like talk about ideas, but we wouldn't have anything like kind of really concrete, but we would have general ideas. And then I would try and pull something together from all the selects. And then we would sit down together. And usually when I would do that, it was like, it's kind of like that first assembly. It's like, I'm putting everything in. And it's way longer than it has to be. But I'm like, these are all the things that kind of worked. And then we would take that and usually like just pare it down and move stuff around. But even that, like it was, it was a mini documentary. Um, it really was. Um, and it took a while to like 
you know, that took a while to evolve. We had a lot of different versions of that. We had long, we had some versions where we tried to use the real Fred Hampton and the real Hoover um, instead of our versions, but we thought that might be confusing. Um, and we found like we when we found the way we did it, we also it was a, like the Hoover scene was very different how it was supposed to go. It wasn't supposed to have Fred Hampton saying the line he says there. But as it evolved, we realized, oh, this is actually a really good way to do this because we can, you know, we can kind of transition from our like little documentary into our thing. Now you're introduced to our Fred. Like we, it was also very important that we like we hear that quote. That's a quote where he says, you know, we're not going to fight capitalism with black capitalism. We're going to fight capitalism with socialism. And it was important for us to like not soften what Fred really believed. He was a staunch socialist. He believed in socialism and we didn't want to like soften it or, you know, make it more applicable to today. Or, you know, we wanted to, even though it turned out, it was very applicable to today with the way things are going. Wasn't as much when we started, but yeah, that one kind of all came together where we realized, okay, actually this is an interesting way. Cause originally it was like, sometimes it went straight from the documentary stuff right into Bill O'Neill stealing the car. At one point we had a title card. We were like Chicago, 1968. Like when we figured out what you're saying, how to do that, how to, you know, kind of transition almost seamlessly into our movie from this world. We're like, oh, this actually works really well. Um, thank you so much for ch chatting with us. And uh, it was really an informative discussion. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. That's it for Out of the Cut this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for nearly 300 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Kristen Sprague. Also, to our sponsors for making this podcast possible, Evercast and Frame.io. This podcast was edited using Adobe Audition. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally, be sure to share them with a filmmaking or film-loving friend. Yeah.